Hello and welcome to Fourth Estate, a show about journalism. We're coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on the Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. I'm Monica Attard. Well, Thursday last week was a landmark defamation ruling which reverberated around the country. Federal Court Judge Anthony Basanko threw out Ben Robert Smith's defamation case against The Age, The Sydney Morning Herald and The Canberra Times. It was a stunning victory. Also, vindication for the nine papers for backing their journalists in what was a titanic battle. Apart from the truth, the other big winner was public interest journalism. While the win was remarkable in many ways, a number of serious questions still need to be answered. Why did it take seven years to reach this point and how could crimes of this nature be perpetrated by Australian soldiers and supported by not just powerful forces in the establishment, but also by large sections of the media? And will it make investigative journalism easier to do? To talk about this, I'm delighted to have one of the country's best and most respected journalists with us today. Chris Masters is a multi-Walkley award-winning journalist. His 1987 Four Corners, The Moonlight State, led to the Fitzgerald inquiry into corruption in Queensland and ultimately brought down the then Bjorki-Peterson government. He is the author of Jonestown, an unauthorised biography of Alan Jones. And it was his work, along with that of Nick McKenzie, who wrote the series of stories with him, which led to the downfall of Ben Robert Smith. Chris Masters, welcome back to Fourth Estate. Can you just begin by telling us how you first came to question the myth around Ben Robert Smith? Because there certainly was a lot of a lot attached to his name. That's right. I mean, the, the most decorated uh, living Australian soldier. I've had a few dealings with him in the past. I actually wrote positively about him in a book that I'd written in, in 2012 called Uncommon Soldier. As a result of that book being published and the, probably the words I said, a couple of people said to me, oh, I think you might not have got that quite right. And I uh, didn't take too much notice of it because one thing you do know if you work with Special Forces soldiers in particular is they're like a wolf pack. You know, people carry on about mateship being the strong bond that forges the Australian soldier, well, there are a lot of anti-mates too, and there's a lot of animosity. And I, so I didn't take a huge amount of notice, but it built as I was working on another book about special forces. It wasn't so much that people were saying to me that he was a war criminal. Indeed, I think they, they, they really didn't want to enter that territory, uh, but they were saying that they thought he was unworthy of the recognition of Australia's most famous soldier and uh, wearing Australia's most uh, prominent medal. And uh, well, let's, let's just take it back to the beginning, though. So I'll un unwind you a little bit. So the book that you're referring to is the book that you wrote that came out of the period that you were embedded with the, uh, with the ADF in Afghanistan? Yes, I was there in 2007. I was there again in 2010. And I was there again in in 2011 with special forces. In 2012, a book was published called Uncommon Soldier. But by that stage, of course, you know, I'd opened some doors in the special forces community. I'm the only reporter to have ever embedded with them. They're very secretive and they're very anti-media. Uh, so I was in an unusual position and I, I probably felt that I had enough to write a book about the special forces mission 
uh, in Afghanistan. So, so that began around about 2013, and it was finally published in 2017. And it was on that embedment in 2011, I think, that you, 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 you're saying that you began to hear things about Ben Robert Smith, but that was in the realm of, you know, I suppose, rumour in regard to his behaviour towards his colleagues. Yes, it wasn't about war crimes. It was about how they thought he was a bully. They thought he wasn't a particularly good soldier. They used to say things like, is the Lance Armstrong of the ADF, you know, a bit of a phony. And I didn't take a lot of notice about of this because I heard similar things being said of a great many other soldiers. You know, there, there's a lot of uh, rivalry. Uh, this is the, the, the SAS is like the wolf pack of soldiering, you know, and they're very competitive. They're very alpha. Uh, so it wasn't unusual to hear that sort of stuff. Uh, it wasn't really until... 2017, as I was in the final stages of getting my book done, and of course the Burton inquiry was underway by then. That uh, that some of these whispers began to merge into rumor, began to merge into the prospect of credible evidence. And and that was when you then contacted Nick McKenzie. How did that relationship come about? Well, I was in touch with Ben Robert Smith before then. You know, there was a, a few questions I had to put to Ben because there was a significant discrepancy and an account of a combat action in 2006 that I'd become aware of. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he'd said something in a tape to the War Memorial that I knew was disputed by other people that was on his patrol, and I felt I had to reconcile that. So I, I, I had an interview with him. He got very cross. And I think that was a turning point because he didn't act like a man with nothing to hide. I mean, if he simply said to me, look, Chris, everybody, you know, in a combat zone tends to have a different view of what occurs, and I know that's so, then, and, you know, okay, these guys think differently, but that's that's what happens. It, it might have gone away, but it didn't. Uh, he got really cross and uh, threatened to sue me and sent angry legal letters to the soldiers he presumed had been talking to me. I had a book about to come out. He, he, he threatened to sue the publisher, Alan and Unwin. He changed his evidence, uh, tried to change his evidence at the Australian War Memorial. So if you like, I mean, I felt, always felt that he drew the battle line. So I didn't. I mean, who would want to get into a battle with a Victor- six-foot-seven Victoria Cross recipient? <laughs> and, uh, and, and at that stage, Nick became involved. Because, you know, remember, I'm not employed by anybody I felt that this was a very big story. It needed uh, some strong support, and I'd known Nick for a long time. We'd worked together before. When it was requested that some extracts from the book be published, I got Nick onto that, and and the relationship was forged, if you like, reforged, because we'd worked together many times, and uh, and it, it went from there. And I suppose Nick would have, hey, given that he's been you know, working in investigative journalism himself for quite a long time, he would have been reasonably sure that his employer was prepared to, you know, stand by the both of you. Well, both of us have been involved in litigation too. We're probably between us. We've been sued by just about everybody. And uh, and and you, you get hardened to that. Uh, you don't want to be sued, You but you, you can't, you can't be coward either. Uh, the worst censorship in journalism is self-censorship. And uh, it's awful being sued because it just takes you away from your job. It takes so much longer. 
the, the amount of effort that's required to actually pull the facts together to shape a newspaper article or a television piece is nothing compared with what is required to defend it in a court of law. But look, we had each other. Uh, that was really important. I'd been through these things on my own in the past. I wasn't employed by anybody. He had the resources of Fairfax as it was then and and known as it as it became later behind him. And because he was fully employed, he he really became the driving force of the story from about 2018 onwards. I mean, we stayed on it together, and I and I think both of us say that we couldn't have done it without each other. Uh, but you know, he did a power of work. Mm. But your byline, so presumably you had some some insurance, some coverage uh, for you know in the event that there was a suit. Yes, well, we we were sued come August uh, 2018 uh, after the first series of articles were published. We were sued. Now, in the preceding months, we didn't really have publishable evidence. In 2017, we'd heard a lot of rumours. We had some documentation. We knew of schisms. We knew of complaints about Robert Smith. Uh, We actually, well, I knew of the alleged cliff-kicking incident where he allegedly was participated in the murder of an Afghan villager called Ali Jan. I'd Mm. I'd known about that in 2017, but I didn't know it as fact. Uh, What what I had was uncorroborated uh, hearsay. Uh, In the beginning of 2018, I spoke with a different soldier who confirmed to me for the first time that he had witnessed Ben Robert Smith uh, involved in the execution of a different Afghan. Uh, A little bit after that, uh, Nick found some crucial evidence. Uh, We we first got a sense of corroboration. And one of the things that helped prove the Afghan allegation, and if you like, uh, the, 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 the Darwan cliff kicker allegation. And if you like, prove it, first of all, to us. I mean, we have to believe our own work first. And uh, we believed it when Nick got in touch with somebody in the United States who unprompted gave firsthand evidence of that alleged kick, cliff kick. And that corresponded with what we then knew the villagers from Darwan were saying and what some of our unnamed sources in West Australia were saying. And, you know, so you've got to say to yourself, there can't be a conspiracy here from three corners of the globe. I think that evidence was compelling to us. I'm sure it was later compelling also to the Broughton Inquiry and, of course, uh, to Justice Pasanko. Because, of course, I mean, one of the parts of investigative journalism, I suppose, is that you hear something and, and it remains in the realm of, of, of gossip or worse, just to, just to claim something out there in the ether, finding the people to, uh, who, have, who have been witnesses, finding the people who actually know what has occurred is such a very difficult process, particularly when you're operating in this kind of environment where you're looking at a war that's taken place on the other side of the world where people are scattered around the globe. That is a huge undertaking, isn't it? Yes, it, it it was almost mission impossible in a way. We couldn't get back to Afghanistan. Uh, it was too dangerous. It's You can't really speak to the illiterate villages. It's not as if they're on the phone. The Special Forces community in Australia is notoriously secretive and very, very anti-media. 
I mean, it was very, very fortunate for me that I had spent time embedded with special forces in Afghanistan. So I had come to know some of the soldiers and built a, a level of trust. You know, it's funny because, you know, in our job, people think that the purest journalism occurs outside the tent and that, you know, inside the tent, you're led around by the nose. But really, being inside the tent was what made the difference because the soldiers knew me. They trusted me enough. I think they felt that their internal elevation of concerns and complaints about Robert Smith had gone absolutely nowhere. So it was time to invoke the classic uh, precincts of the Fourth Estate. Mm. And, and let's talk a little bit about that whole issue of being embedded because it does have such a, you know, a bad name in journalism, as, as you say. And, and I, I recall you being criticised for that period of time when, when you were embedded as well. There obviously, though, is some benefit in that, and that you've already outlined the trust factor that people will learn to trust you. I'm wondering, though, whether it changed your view of the way Australian soldiering happens. Often people think that if you're embedded, then you're, you come out of it with a very, very positive view, a very affirmative view of the way um, those personnel operate. For you, was it that? Well, well you, ha- you have to accept that if you're protected by the soldiers, if you're in a dangerous environment, then you're you're going to get close to them and you're going to have enormous respect for them and your own objectivity will be challenged. I think the the criticism of the embedded reporter was always unfair uh, because journalism is about good judgment and it's not as if I couldn't make a good judgment about the facts. I didn't think that the reporter working inside the tent was any better or worse off than the reporter working outside the tent. I mean, it's not as if the Taliban wouldn't tell you lies as well as, you know, defence media officials. It's up to the journalists to work it out themselves. I mean, that's the job. It's not being told stuff. It's about figuring it out. And it's hypocritical of journalists to accuse journalists of of just sort of being on the drip when that's how 90% of the, the industry works. I mean, Sporting reporters rely on contact with the sports clubs. Uh, the industry relies on press releases. It's we, We've then got to do our own job to, to fundamentally get to the truth. And I thought, ironically, it was because of my access as an embedded reporter that, that, that opened that door. Mm. And I was just about to ask you about that because what would happen then if you were embedded and, you know, you come across information such as you you, you did come across with Ben Robert Smith that, you know, that is quite damning or has the potential to be damning and yet you are kind of right there in the belly of, of, the, of the force. What do you do? How do you behave? What, what's your reaction to those around you? Well, that's, of course, exactly what happened. I always said from the beginning, look, you know full well that I'm a journalist first, and if I see something that's in the public interest that you don't want me to report, then I will report it. As much as I had signed a deed of agreement that uh, prevented me from disclosing uh, national security information, I always thought that was fair enough. You know, uh, human life is more important than a good story. I don't think any of us thought that I would ever come across anything like that. I don't think that many of the people I 
was working with either thought that uh, war crimes were going on or had any any real knowledge of them. As my knowledge base grew and I began to submit more and more material to the Defence Department, some of it very, very unflattering, I was, of course, worried that they were going to try to find a way to stop me publishing it. And, uh, you know, I would say to them, and the deal the deal was, of course, that they had no editorial control over what I was writing. They had input for sure, but it would be my call at the end of the day. Mm. And, uh, and so this material continued to go in chapter by chapter by chapter. I didn't get any kickback at all. And uh, it really surprised me, actually. I was waiting for it, but it, it, it didn't really happen. Now, I don't know to this day for sure why that didn't happen, but you you have to stand back from the whole fracas and say, well, the Defence Force did call on the special in- investigator. The IGADF was was actually initiated by Defence. Uh, Jeff Singleman was the special operations commander. He obviously, and I know this, you know, he came to a view as I came to a view around about 2015, 2016, that there was a bit of a smell there. And he wanted to do something about it. So he commissioned Sam Cromfords to look into it. They they saw that, uh, yes, that uh, there was a bit more than rumour there. They went to the chief of the army at the time, uh, General Campbell, and said, uh, we think there should be a uh, an inquiry into this. And, and so the in- Burton inquiry was initiated. Mm. I wasn't the only one who wanted to get to the bottom of things. So, Chris, you know, did that period of being embedded and then subsequently investigating with Nick McKenzie the whole Ben Robert Smith story, did that change, has it changed your view of the way Australia does soldiering? Well, I always liked the idea of courageous restraint. I I admired the soldiers in Afghanistan. I saw this up close for myself who would patrol with a view of protecting uh, innocent villagers from a predatory Taliban and doing so with their fingers off the trigger at significant uh, risk to themselves. I think I had a kind of a romantic notion that Australian soldiers uh, coming from uh, a society that that values uh, toughness and fairness, uh, decent behaviour, that, uh, that they were well suited to this really difficult environment. And much of what I saw working with conventional forces, you know, reinforced those views. And at the time, thinking back to 2010, 2011, 2012, you know, the Americans were suffering all sorts of disgrace because of revelations of uh, what had happened at Abu Ghraib. Canadian special forces had disbanded a unit uh, earlier after the uh, Somalia uh, issue. And uh, so, you know, War brings out the worst in people as well as the best in people. It was never never so naive as not to believe that Australian soldiers could do bad things, but I didn't really have any evidence of it. I didn't really see it happening. But when I became aware of it, it's not as if to say I thought, no, that can't be. But what, did you think that Australian soldiers were above all of that at the, at the time? Well, I couldn't think that, no. I, I thought that the training was good, the leadership was good, and essentially the core of them were above that. But you're always going to get rogues. It's very, very difficult. When you, when you think about it, uh, who can you get to do this kind of work? And sometimes some of the soldiers I met, I thought, would were, were just as easily placed in a bikey gang. You know, it's it, it's it's a pretty rough culture. A lot of them 
aren't particularly well educated in not not in 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 the conventions of civil society anyway. They're very very well educated in their own craft. But there was one occasion in Afghanistan I heard about where uh, uh, one of the soldiers unfurled a Nazi flag, and uh, you know that shocked me as I'm sure it shocks you to hear that. And mm. we don't think that Australian soldiers could any, could could embrace Nazism. I'm not going to make excuses for that person, but but I was told when they were challenged about it afterwards, you know, he really didn't know much at all about modern history. He didn't really know much about World War II and uh, uh, you know the Holocaust. Uh, he he uh, he just thought it was cool, <laughs> right? But that's just kind of foolishness, right? It's, it doesn't it's go foolishness. To- yes, you see a lot of that. You know, you saw you saw it in our own trial. You saw the SAS partying at the fat lady's arms and somebody wearing a Ku Klux Klan outfit, you know, they, uh, they're, 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 when they're boys on the beer who, who can be way, way, way over the top, there's a lot of misogyny in the ADFs. Uh, and, uh, a lot of it, a lot of it is inexcusable, also cultural, given that, uh, it's mostly male and they're, they're away in theater quite a lot. Doing horrible things, Chris. Back, back back to the Ben Robert Smith story. So you know, basically, as soon as you went about telling the story of his actions, which you had at that point verified, you had corroboration in Afghanistan, you were attacked by several sections of the media. Did that shock you at all, or was that? Did you expect that to happen? It shocked me to a degree. I mean, I expect there to be some. fraternal relationship in media we all do a difficult job at the end of the day we all basically work for the public i thought that everybody would know how hard this work was for nick and i and uh would would cut us a little bit of slack on that basis quite the opposite you know we we, it was just seen as competition the a lot of the attacks on us were were low blow attacks that generated uh, death threats to both of us. I, I, I felt that what happened was that we were so in front in the reporting, you know, we had so many strong connections into that community that the other side didn't have that they tried to catch up essentially by going on the drip, you know, being fed material from our opponents and 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 just taking a classic contrary approach. What's worst about it is when you you know that they must know that what they're reporting is wrong. I, I know that they they were warned ahead of time that Masters and Mackenzie had pretty good information, uh, but they continued to attack us right and left. And uh, then they do the the classic reverse ferret. Of course, as the Burton inquiry approaches, and it becomes clear that uh, they're on the wrong tram, and that those evil journalists. Fairfax are probably reporting factually, and this is how Brereton is going to find, they suddenly do a U-turn and, uh, and and hope that nobody notices. That didn't stop them from then coming back for another nibble, did it, post of Brereton? Oh, no, that's right. There, there were a couple of uh, reverse ferrets. That's what they call it in their industry. Uh, you know, when, when you disown everything you reported beforehand and and change direction entirely, but but ne- but never acknowledge that you were formally wrong. Mm. Uh, no, they attacked us again as they uh, continue to do again and again, as it as it turns out. But how a- you- again and again, and I mean, you know, what I say is, look, 
after a while, I think, oh gosh, you people, you work in the same industry as me. You know, we're, half of us are married married to one another. Uh, you've got to respect other journalists, and you know, sometimes it's really the job is really difficult. And and uh, when the editor tells you that you should do the story this way, when you know it's it's the opposite. I mean, what do you do if you're a thirty year old with two kids or whatever? There aren't that many jobs around, so. I have some degree of sympathy for them. But on the other hand, I think, well, you're not doing journalism anymore. You're just doing propaganda. And and the worst of them, they're not, they're not doing the job, which is speaking truth to power. They're actually doing the opposite. So much of the 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 competitive reporting on Ben Robert Smith actually came from the power groups that really oppose the exposition of war crimes. Mm. But it, you're referring there to, you know, to elements of the establishment, and particularly the defence force establishment that that supports the kind of myth making and doesn't want to see that disturbed. It's it's more in the diaspora, I think. It's somewhat more in the political community. Actually, I still have some regard for the the core values of the ADF, and I said before that they did commission the Burton inquiry, and they. They have done their well. They've done something towards protecting the soldiers who have actually spoken out. Uh, I, I think that soldiering can't survive on myth. You know, the the soldiers are the first to know that it will get them killed. So they 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 need to know. They need to have a, an honest appreciation of their own capacity. And I I think that is true. It's the it's the digger diaspora. It's the romantics. It was the nonsense of Brent, Brendan Nelson, the director of the Australian War Memorial, for God's sake, Kerry Stokes, the chairman of the War Memorial, who wanted to hang on to that romantic and, as it turned out, idiotic view that uh, our soldiers are something like seven foot tall and, and bulletproof heroes in the form of uh, Ben Robert Smith. So how do you think Stokes is, you know, feeling? We've only heard we've heard so little from him since the judgment. Do you think that do you think that he he may have changed his mind about Ben Robert Smith? I just couldn't answer that. I used to wonder whether he would change his mind because I I felt that we had learned so much and surely he knows somewhat what we know. The other thing is I genuinely believe he is a defender of the Australian soldier and he's very proud of the Perth-based regiment, SASR. He's done a lot for them. But but why was he why was he supporting Ben Robert Smith and and not the soldiers mm. who had the moral courage to to tell a very difficult truth? Mm. Okay. I, I wanted to ask you as well about the impact you think this might have on the continuation of, you know, investor to give journalism in Australia, which has been so terribly hard for so many people for so long because of the current state of the defamation laws, which have been undergoing reform, but the reform has been slow and, 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 and you know, not, not hugely significant. A lot of the commentary around this case as it relates to journalism is that it will result in investigative journalism becoming easier to do, less fraught with the fear that the story and the major investment that goes into these kinds of investigations will be for nothing. Do you think that is the case? Do you think it will become that proprietors and editors will become less fearful of allowing the investment to take place? I think it is a watershed case and I think it, it will have an impact. 
I can't really see that investigative journalism gets a lot easier in that it still costs a huge amount of money. Uh, it's money that the industry doesn't really have. Extraordinary. Can you imagine the ABC spending $20 million defending one of its reporters? It simply couldn't afford it. And also, the toll on Nick and I was huge. You know, you shouldn't be joining the industry to undergo this sort of torture and torment. Five years of continuing to do your work, but at the same time, waking up every day, having this hanging over your head, the consequences are just catastrophic, more so to the people who help us than for ourselves. But don't think that it isn't a horrible, horrible worry every day. So I, I, I can't see that in investigative journalism is going to be significantly encouraged, encouraged to a degree, and I think really good that the Australian public get a bit of a look at, at, at what we do and how we do it and how hard it is and maybe improve their respect for the general craft of journalism. I mean, if we don't do this work, who will? I have got a bit of feedback that's encouraging me on that front. I suppose the greatest encouragement is in the fact that if there are other Ben Robert Smiths out there who think, yep, I'm going to take on Fairfax, I'm going to take on Nine, and I'm going to make a fortune, and I'm get, going to get these top-shelf lawyers, doesn't matter that I don't have the truth on my side, I've got an enormous amount of power on my side, I don't think there'll be quite so many of them anymore. Presumably the, the, the new defence, the new public interest defence, will lessen that possibility as well. Yeah. I mean, none of us really want to get sued in the first place and, and no publisher does either because it, even the, the first letter you get is 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 not just intimidatory, but it's also expensive. It, it, it's going to encourage them to think, you know, it's going to end up costing hundreds of thousands of dollars to fight this. Uh, should we settle? You know, they might well say, even if they know they're absolutely right, that they'll, they'll be... Uh, some kind of pressure to settle, and that that happens only too often. Just on this, this defamation issue, though, because I, I do think it's interesting. You know, you, you talked about kind of waking up in the last five years and with this thing hanging over your head, and this is Chris Masters who's been sued. I don't know how many times, how many times you've been through this through the courts on defamation. As long as I've known you, if, and 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 quite possibly a lot longer than that. So you're no stranger to defamation cases. So when you heard that Ben Robert Smith was suing, what what did you think? What, what was the immediate thought? Well, look, I mean, I hate it. I've, I've, uh, I have been sued a lot of times and it's caused me a huge amount of heartache. It's made me think it's just not worth it. You know, the amount of time and effort, the trouble you take to do this journalism, it's just not worth it. It's, uh, it, it, you know, it, it, it's, it's just morally and mentally exhausting. You tend to have to continue to do your other work as well. It can feel very, very lonely. Uh, I... Uh, I regard journalism as a vocation. I think that if you if you see it as a profession, as I do, with professional responsibilities, one of those responsibilities is to take risks. And if you're an investigative reporter with the privilege to do more than what the daily reporter can do, then also you've got to take on the stories that you don't really want to do. And that that's that was my test for what it's worth. I used to say. Every time I started on a news story, I'd think to myself, what's the story I least want to do? And I remember, for example, doing the story on Alan Jones and thinking, God almighty, 
this will cause me so much trouble if I take on uh, somebody in, in my own industry and challenge their power base. But it was important, and I, and I think I think Nick McKenzie and and many of my colleagues uh, think much the same. Chris, I'll ask you a question about the defences that 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 nine ran, which was the truth defence. Why the truth defence and not the others that were available to you? Well, truth is uh, is actually the hard one to win, but I'm glad we pleaded truth because it was confrontational. We were actually saying to the other side, oh, no, no, okay, we know it's hard. We know the courts aren't necessarily favourable to, to journalists and the media, but uh, we're going to plead truth. We believed it. We believed these allegations were true. We'd spoken to enough people who, who uh, provided sort of compelling evidence. So I think that that might have set them back on their heels a bit. And I'm really proud and glad that we were able to ultimately uh, plead truth. When I did the Queensland case uh, on the Moonlight State in, in 1987 and was sued many times, you know, over 13 years, my death by a thousand courts, we didn't plead truth. We pleaded qualified privilege, which is closer to the public interest defence that, that that's now being promulgated. And, and essentially in qualified privilege, you basically have to demonstrate that you, you you are operating faithfully, responsibly, and in the public interest. And when you think about it, the bar in those days was so high. I mean, here am I alleging that there's institutional corruption in Queensland Police Force that goes right up into the higher realms of government. You know, they've got all of the power. It was also about the criminal underworld and drugs trafficking and organised crime. You know, again, they've got... The, po- the police have got all the information there. How can, how can a journalist challenge what they know? Uh, but it took so long. That's one of the reasons it took so long was because it essentially became an attack on me and, and my methodology. And it was one of the reasons that I felt so defeated because, uh, uh, you, you know, I, I, if you like, I was the defendant because we were pleading that we were pleading qualified privilege and stating that I had operated responsibly. It's another reason why I was so pleased that uh, we ran the truth defence in this one because it, it it actually took the focus away from Nick McKenzie and I. The focus instead on was whether these things happened rather than, you know, whether Nick and I had uh, operated responsibly. As it happened, neither of us had to give evidence and that might be a relief at, at one level. Uh, I'm not really sure what I think about that, though, because there, there were plenty of times when I was sitting there in court and, uh, you know, there, was, there were attacks on on my character and credibility where I really felt like standing up and saying, hang on a minute, uh, can I have my say? Mm. And, and if public interest defence had been available, how do you think you might have fared under that one on this story? I think we would have fared well, but I still think we would have done better. We obviously did do better with the truth defence, so it doesn't really come into play. But, uh, but yes, this matter was significantly in the public interest. There was uh, a good reason for the media to get involved because uh, it was clear that complaints and concerns that had been raised by soldiers uh, hadn't really gone anywhere. It's true that the Inspector General's inquiry uh, was underway, so it's not as if there there was no action at all. But there's also a sort of a public education factor to this too. I think Australians have learned a lot about our military conduct and uh, learned a lot about 
the conduct of our, our, our soldiers abroad, I think it's been useful at a range of levels. One of the lessons that you want our defence force, our political class and our media to take from what you and Nick McKenzie have just gone through and from that judgment? I, I would like to think that if they were going to work with journalists, they should think about working with the ones who have a record for getting it right, not the ones who are on their side. That's the trouble, you know, that uh, there, there are so many alliances, uh, so many deals done. One of the reasons that the ABC r remains a valuable national institution is it's so much harder to do a deal with it. And uh, I, I, I would like to think that they recognise that journalism is important. You know, the fourth estate is important, uh, that uh, if we don't do this work, who, who's going to do it? Mm. And I know that I said that was the final question, but I do have one more, and that is in relation to Ben Robert Smith specifically in the aftermath of uh, of the judgment. He 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 not only still has his medals, he has a major exhibition at the National War Memorial in Canberra. Do you think that, for starters, the exhibition should be remade to be about his war crimes? Is that taking it too far, given the the different levels of of burden that you face in a civil jurisdiction facing a defamation trial and a, a criminal court, if it were to come to that? I remember having a conversation with the former director of the War Memorial, Brandon Nelson, in, in around about Anzac Day 2017, after, you know, the centenary of Anzac in 2015, and Brandon was well known for his well-chosen words, and I said, maybe you should think about beginning to find some words that uh, that actually explain that War brings out the worst in us, not only the best in us, that uh, the Inspector General's inquiry is under, underway and it's likely to find some, some embarrassing facts about Australian soldiering. It ought to be put into perspective. The War Memorial, when it was instituted initially by the historian, at, he, he led the process, Charles Bean. He, Bean was a journalist. He believed in telling the truth. You know, the War Memorial should be an institute that honours the truth. And part of that truth is about the ugly face of war. I think it's, uh, I'd like to think that that the War Memorial could accommodate the truth about uh, Ben Robert Smith if they can continue to run displays around him. Chris, thank you so much for talking to Fourth Estate. Really appreciate your time. And uh, I hope you get some rest from all this very soon. Thanks a lot, Monica. And on that note, I'd like to thank Chris Masters for being on Fourth Estate. And thanks for listening to the program. This edition was recorded at the studios of 2SER and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Fourth Estate is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Thanks to the Foundation for their continuing support. Make sure you subscribe to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app so that you can hear us talk about media, politics and everything in between. We'll be back with more next week, but in the meantime, please stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle there is Fourth Estate AU. Thanks to my producer, Anthony Dockrell. I'm Monica Attard, and thank you for listening.